brave souls managing to venture out of your homes today. <laughs> I could have come to you. May the peace of the Lord be with you. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and redeemer. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. All right, I have a name for this sermon. It's the story of Nicodemus, a play in three acts. Pretty good, huh? Um, I was printing this out at work, and someone nicely brought it to my office and said, someone trying to quit smoking? I go, what? He goes, yeah, this Nicodemus. I hear it's pretty good. (laughs) I think he meant Nicodemus. I don't know. Okay, so you've probably heard it said that every story has been told just in a different way. There was a book written in 2004 by an author named Christopher Brooker. It's called Seven Basic Plots, Why We Tell Stories. And essentially what the claim is, is that there are seven basic plot structures. I'll run them down for you quickly. It's kind of interesting. We have overcoming the monster. What could that be? Think of Jaws. Rags to riches. Think of Cinderella. The quest. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Voyage and return. Wizard of Oz. Tragedy. The movie Bonnie and Clyde. Comedy. A Midsummer's Night Dream. Yeah. <laughs> Hold on. And finally, rebirth, okay? And probably one of the most famous rebirth stories is Dickens' A Christmas Carol, right? Where the individual finds personal light. Okay, so what is the plot of the story of Nicodemus? Okay, well, it has to be either a comedy since he moves from confusion to enlightenment. And that's what the core of a comedy is. Or it's a story of rebirth. Am I giving anything away? Where he seeks to find his personal light. Okay, here, right, I think we could say safely it's a story of rebirth because not only does he find his personal light, he finds the light of the world. Okay? So rebirth stories normally focus on some type of villain, and they do something to redeem themselves over the course of the story. They spiral deeper and deeper into villainy until they meet a redemptive figure, right? This is real Joseph Campbell stuff here, if you're familiar with what I'm talking about. So lots of times they'll come in the form of a child, the redemptive figure, or someone who is opposite from this villain character. And here we have Christ as opposed to Nicodemus. So it's a paradigmatic rebirth story. And this person who encounters this villain figure, I'm not saying he's mean, it's like the antagonist, help the villain to see something that they're missing. All right. So this three-act structure, you're saying, what are you talking about? You just read the gospel reading, right? This is just where Jesus tells Nicodemus that he has to be reborn. Well, it's interesting when we consider that, in fact, in the book of John, Nicodemus is mentioned three times. 
right? So again, this is paradigmatic three-act structure. It's been used by the writer of Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the plays of Shakespeare, Aesop's fables. We like thirds. It's just like if anyone tells you a joke, right? It's like, well, the first time, the second time, it's always thirds. We feel comfortable with thirds. Hitchcock used thirds, okay? The Greeks in their drama slash tragedies. Hollywood uses it, right? Think of your favorite movie. It can be divided into thirds. And it was used by John to tell the story of Nicodemus. Okay, so what is Act 1? Act 1 is just the setup. It's where we meet the characters of the story, right? And it's where somehow the story is moved forward. All right, we'll see if that happens. Number two, there's a confrontation. It's a pivotal element in the story, right? That serves to catapult the story into the third act. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm probably the only one who lives in Southern California who hasn't written a screenplay. So, so this is, I'm sure y'all are going, yeah, I have mine if you'd like to. You go out to eat in Hollywood and the waiter drops off your bill with his screenplay. Okay, act three is the resolution. It's the final confrontation followed by resolution. And this is normally the shortest part of the story, okay, and follows quickly after the second act. And it's where the main villain comes face-to-face with something, okay? In this case, it could be Christ. It could be himself, okay? The confrontation can even happen, if we're talking about a movie, happen off-screen, And the only way we know that the confrontation occurred is that we see the effects. We see how the character is somehow changed. All right. So now we know that we're looking at a rebirth story in three acts. Unfortunately, biblical authors don't write in the style of screenwriters or modern novelists. Okay, And lots of times the biblical characters that we encounter are kind of flat, two-dimensional, right? not real exciting. Okay, But yet there's some that seem to burst off of the page. Okay, For me, right, I'm probably a universe of one, but Nicodemus kind of does that. Ever since I read the third chapter, Nicodemus, here he is, a Pharisee, interesting guy. Right? Part of the Sanhedrin. He doesn't understand what rebirth means. Okay? So to me, Nicodemus is one of those characters. So at the end, Nicodemus ends up pretty confused by his conversation with Christ. So I could, and in fact, I was very much inclined or tempted to look at the story of Nicodemus and just do what's already been done, right? Because how many times do you think someone has preached a on Nicodemus? But no, <laughs> I figured, you know what, there has to be something else. How is this speaking to me, okay? How am I going to help my friend get off of cigarettes? Um, that's <laughs> 
So this is a rebirth plot. What do we know about Nicodemus? Here's a few things. Kind of interesting, right? That'll help to take that two-dimensional figure, right? And hang meat on the bones. Okay, the name Nicodemus, because when you read the, the New Testament, you're reading it in Greek. If you look at the Greek name Nicodemus, it actually means victory of the people. Now, how does that impact our story? I don't know. Okay. The Pharisee, Nicodemus, was a member of the ruling council. Okay? So that means he was also probably a member of the Sanhedrin. This is important. Okay? The Sanhedrin was composed of two factions, which you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Okay? The thing that's interesting about that fact is that it shows us that at this time, the Sanhedrin probably wasn't completely unified because we know historically that the Sadducees had a um, majority in the Sanhedrin. But yet, here we have Nicodemus, a Pharisee, who was in the minority of this council. That becomes interesting for Act 2, at least to me. Also, a lot of ink has been spilled um, about the fact that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Okay? You ever have a visitor at night and it's good news, right? You ever have anyone come to you at night? Why might they come to you at night? Well, they might be embarrassed to be seen with you. All right? I thank God I'm not dating anymore, right? All the women showing up at night. Um, <coughs> they might be embarrassed, afraid of losing status. Some scholars say that um, perhaps he was in fact a spy for the Sanhedrin. I don't think any of those things, right? I have a simple little mind. What I think he did is went and saw Jesus at a time where he could sit and have a conversation with Christ. Okay, he didn't do it during the daylight when Jesus would have been surrounded by other people. Okay, he wasn't a spy, right? He, he wouldn't have engaged in the conversation that he engaged in with Jesus. Like, for instance, what does he do? He begins by referring to Jesus as rabbi. Okay, rabbi is almost, in the first century, a term of affection and respect, and almost showing that we are equals, we are colleagues, okay? So there was a respect, and there was a knowledge of Jesus. Also, he acknowledges that um, Jesus wasn't any ordinary teacher, Somehow he was sent by God. Now remember who Nicodemus was, and he's saying this. He also uses the term, we know. Who's we? Some people say maybe there were followers, like other followers. We don't know. Okay? Maybe it's referring to the Sanhedrin. Okay? We know. Okay? But the important part is that Nicodemus knew. 
Now, for a Jew, again, in the first century, signs were very important. Okay? If someone is a person of God, okay, it's going to be proven or borne out in signs, in their acts, in their actions. Nicodemus acknowledged the signs that Christ has shown. Okay? So, Nicodemus does all this stuff. Rabbi, we all know that no one could, you know, that you've come from God. And what does Jesus do? Okay? He responds by challenging him. Okay? You have to be born again. Now, we think that here's Nicodemus, a very educated man, and he's confused by this concept of born again. If I said, right, in the first century, you have to be born again, would you think I meant it literally? Well, in order to be fair, again, going back to the Greek, the Greek word that is used is anothen. And it can be translated in two ways. Again, or from above. Okay, so essentially Jesus is saying you have to be born again or you have to be born from above. We would have had a very different reading today if Jesus would say, said you have to be born again from above. Okay, so Nicodemus takes the um, interpretation that it means again. Thus the question. So if you read it in the Greek, I'm just telling you it doesn't come off as is this guy slow? You know, does he, what, what doesn't he understand? Okay, it's an error that anyone could make. Also, interesting thing about a first century Jew is that this concept of seeing the kingdom of God okay, meant participating in God's kingdom at the end of an age. It meant eternal life. So here was a Jew speaking to a Jew. Okay? However, one of the Jews happened to be the son of God. Okay. Nicodemus asked a second question. Okay. And this is a common biblical convention, especially in the New Testament. That question, is it answered? Not exactly. It's used as a vehicle for Jesus to embark on a lengthy explanation. Okay. Then we don't see Nicodemus for a while. It's like exit stage left. So... End of Act 1, the stage falls. So we've introduced Jesus and Nicodemus. We've glimpsed at the world that they live in. Okay? And the conflict that they're involved in has to do with paths to salvation and whether or not Nicodemus will take it. See, you didn't know how exciting that gospel reading was, right? Just you're thinking, why? I see his lips moving. Is he saying anything? Okay, so Act 2 is the confrontation. That happens in John 7, verses 45 through 52. I'm giving you those, like, assuming you're going to go home and look them up. I'm such a trusting soul. Okay. So, in that, what happens is that the chief priest and the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin, they say, you know what, this Jesus guy, to be a problem. Okay, so they send out guards to arrest him. And the guards come back, and the high priest said, Good job, where's Jesus? And what do the guards say? 
well, okay, we don't have Jesus, but you've never heard someone talk like this. Like, how could we, right? So they start berating them. You know, you guys are in so much trouble. You're so incompetent. We sent you out. He's, you know, there's this simple Jew. He's not armed. Just bring him back. How hard could that be? Right? And who speaks up? Nicodemus. And what does he say? Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? He's saying, wait a minute. He's defending Jesus. We live by the law. We're supposed to enforce the law. In fact, we create the law based upon the Bible. But yet, you want us to go capture this Jesus, right? He's done nothing. Wow, can you imagine standing in front of the Sanhedrin and saying that? You probably wouldn't be real popular. And how do we know that? By the response. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Okay, Galilee wasn't highly thought of. You know, it was like, I don't know. Are you from Cucamonga? I'm sorry if there's anyone. From... <laughs> and they also said, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Okay, Galilee wasn't highly thought of. So what's going on with Nicodemus here? Okay, um, we don't know. If he's a true disciple, but we know that he's somehow been changed by his encounter with Christ. Okay? He wouldn't have made that statement unless he was somehow changed by the time he spent with our Lord. It was courageous for him to stand up to the Sanhedrin. And in fact, he did so today in daylight. Okay, he didn't come in the night. He stood up and proclaimed in the light of day. Essentially, he was saying, guys, keep an open mind about this person from Galilee. So what do we know? This was Jesus' second trip to Jerusalem, and the Sanhedrin wanted him arrested. Okay. Um, and the guard said, this guy is really charismatic. We're, we're, we couldn't arrest him. We kind of like him. Okay. And his remarks, again, didn't indicate he was a follower, only that he somehow believed. The depth and character of that belief, we don't know. Okay. I think it's interesting that, or ironic, that Nicodemus quotes to them the law. You are people of the law, yet you're not even following the law. Oh, you hypocrites. Okay. He also asked the question, right, like a good lawyer. He asked the question in a way that they have to agree with him. Right. Isn't it true that? Well, well yeah. Okay. Also, I already noted their scornful remarks show us how they regarded people from Galilee. So the curtain falls. We have the second act. This is pivotal because it represents a confrontation between Nicodemus and the chief priests. He's changed directions. Okay? He's amongst his traditional group, speaking to the group in a way that would not be expected. And the stakes are very high. Ready? 
Act 3. This is chapter 19, verses 39 through 42. Our Lord is crucified and dies. And you guys all know that a gentleman by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, who had followed Christ secretly, now divulges his faith and asks Pilate for our Lord's body, which is given to him. Okay, Who shows up to bury our Lord or to entomb our Lord? Who do you think? Nicodemus. What? What are you doing, Nicodemus? You keep popping up in the weirdest. And what does he bring? Okay, he brings, let me see, a mixture of myrrh and aloes. And how much does he bring? A little bit? 75 pounds. Okay, do you think that Nicodemus just had aloe and myrrh sitting around the house, 75 pounds, you know. Yeah, I'll use part of my side. No, he probably went out and bought it. It's quite expensive. So what does that do? It tells us that he was well off. What would they do? Um, the the um, myrrh would be powdered and would become like a resin, and the um, aloes would be used to mask the scent of a um, decomposing body, okay? But the key for us is the amount, 75 pounds. That's the amount, if you read the accounts, that would be used when you were entombing a royal body, okay? So that can mean several things, okay? It could be the author telling us that, This is Jesus Christ, the king. Or it can be that. And Nicodemus viewed Christ as his king, as royalty. Recognized that. All right? So this is the last mention that we have of Nicodemus. Along with Joseph, he prepared the body for burial. John is the only gospel that mentions the involvement of Nicodemus in this process. I explained to you what myrrh and aloes was. I explained to you the 75 pounds. Okay, wealthy man. Also, they were Jews, and they went to great lengths to preserve the traditional Jewish burial customs, which is interesting. Okay, so again, there's been a lot of scholarly literature on this. Okay. Some scholars say that this is an indication of the love that these gentlemen had for. Okay, others say, well, not only that, but they can be counted among their disciples. We don't know. We don't know if, they're, if they were actually disciples, but what we do know certainly is that it was an act of sacrifice, an act of love, okay? Joseph came out and publicly said, Pilate, give me this body. Okay, I want to care for it. Nicodemus said, and I want to anoint it. Okay, those are acts of love. Okay. I don't know, but it looks like perhaps Nicodemus was acting in accordance with the teachings 
that he had learned from Christ. Remember how I said that there is a confrontation and you see the results? Okay, we don't see the confrontation. We don't know the confrontation that Nicodemus had, but we see the results. Okay, and it's a subtle shift. He goes from questioning, not understanding, meeting our Lord in the dark, to standing up for him publicly, okay, before the strongest body in Jerusalem, and finally bearing our Lord. Okay, so it's quite an interesting progression that's made in John's gospel. The thing that I like about the story is that Nicodemus is persistent. Okay, he's questioning. Okay. I think how that applies to us is that this story shows us that starting in the dark and with uncertainty is actually a good place to start. It's not a bad place. From there, you can be open to wherever the Spirit leads you. Okay, so I'm sure, I'm positive on that first dark night that he met with Jesus. Okay, Nicodemus never contemplated that it would end with him lugging 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe to bury this man. Okay, just as we, we ask questions, we cannot possibly contemplate where those questions will lead us. But it is certain that if we ask those questions, we'll come up with new ideas, with new possibilities, perhaps even be put on the path of a new adventure, one led by the Holy Spirit. So in the world today, everybody says, okay, we can get overwhelmed by so much information. Okay, some of it is true, some of it isn't true, some of it is propaganda, some of it is even alternative facts. So, in this context, we have to appreciate Nicodemus and his persistence in seeking answers to his questions and not resting once he thinks he found the truth. Okay? Applied to us during our lifetimes, okay, I don't want to disappoint you, but I just encourage you to ask questions. Okay, you have to do so knowing you will never have all of the answers. Okay, all you could hope for is that the Holy Spirit would breathe into your heart and mind and cause you to keep asking questions. You're never going to learn all of the answers. Keep searching, just like Nicodemus did. And I offer this to you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.